Welcome, guys. It's so nice to, to see you guys here, and uh, we'll get this mic volume dialed in in a bit. Don't worry. We have our best back there. Tylene, she can dial this in for us. Um, good morning and, and welcome. Um, so great to see you all here on this fine Sunday morning. Beautiful day out. Um, next week is Mother's Day, just as a heads up. Don't forget to bring your mom to church with you. So uh, we'll see her next week. Early Mother's Day this year, because it's always the second Sunday in May. And the first Sunday, don't see, don't, don't think I don't see you there, Chinny. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, guys. Sorry. Sorry to embarrass you, Chinny. Uh, uh, that happens sometimes at Sedaris. Um, don't forget to bring your mom uh, next Sunday, all right? So my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're so glad that you're with us. Um, if you brought your Bible, go ahead and take that out. We use those every Sunday. And open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you don't know where 1 Corinthians is in the Bible, no worries. There's a table of contents there for you. You can look up 1 Corinthians there. And then uh, when you get to it, just turn over so you see a big, a big number 6. That's where we're going to be today, starting in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 6. And like Dave indicated, and it's so cool that we have this artwork starting today, is we're coming back to our series in 1 Corinthians, where we, we pushed pause on it for a couple weeks around Easter so that we could talk about the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension, and really lean into those realities of, of, of the Christian life. And if, if you're a new Christian or not a Christian or Honestly, even if, if you've been a Christian for a long time, go back and give those a listen to because those are the big topics of Christianity that sometimes even Christians, we can just become too familiar with them. And, and, and all of a sudden they don't uh, carry the same, we don't have the same reverence for the weight that they actually are in our lives. And, and so as a result, we're unable to tap into the power that they actually have. So we, we did a fun three-week sermon series there. Um, but uh, those sermons, because the cross, resurrection, and ascension are central to all the scriptures, they have a ton to do with this communal moving in step with the gospel of Jesus that these murmurations really have to do with. And, and I, I just wanted to point to a passage here uh, that really highlights that for us uh, from another one of Paul's letters, Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, and he says this in Ephesians chapter 4. He's actually talking about church unity in this passage. Um, Ephesians 4. We'll throw it on the screen here for you. Or not. I can turn it over. There it is. Sorry. Awesome. Um, nope. This is 1 Corinthians 6. Ephesians 4. There we go. There we go. Perfect. Paul is unpacking the ascension of Christ for the Christian community in Ephesus and telling them what it has to do with how they should live their life. And he says this, What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. He's talking about Jesus. And, and he himself, Jesus, gave some to be apostles, he, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit, but with speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, this is here, think murmurations here, from him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. That's one thing that is a huge concept of an aspect of Christianity. Christianity isn't just one big thing happening. It's a thousand birds happening. 
It's a lot of small things coming together and, and, and by so doing, creating a movement. That's what movement is. It's a lot of small things happening, not one or two big ones. And in 1 Corinthians, just like in Ephesus, Paul's painting this communal vision. In fact, if you've been here throughout the whole time, you may have been surprised, like, whoa, this is far more communal than I thought. I thought we were going to be talking about individuals, and, and I thought Paul was just calling individuals to get on board in 1 Corinthians. And to be sure, Paul does hope that these individuals do get on board, but his deeper, more profound message that's really diving down deep into the wells when we understand him is he's trying to bring up this water for us, this living water that has a vision of communal living that far outpaces our understanding of what community could be because it's coming from another world. It's coming from heaven. And it's done that for 2,000 years. It's far outpaced it, and it comes from heaven because Jesus went up there and he sent down his spirit. He ascended, right, to empower us to do it. And so that's what we're really leaning into over the course of this teaching series. Um, and uh, in the first five or, or first four or so chapters, Paul's unpacking these big concepts for the Corinthians and for us. Namely, how can we lean into uh, the power, the wisdom of Christ um, instead of our default, which all of us are kind of raised to do even nowadays, uh, the power and wisdom of the world? How can we lean on Christ's power and wisdom instead of our own power and wisdom? That's like the big idea of the first couple chapters of 1 Corinthians. And then he gets into these uh, a couple examples that he's pointing to that kind of illustrate like you're obviously leaning into just your own and the world's power and wisdom and, and all these different ways because these things are happening. And, and the first one we, we covered about a month ago, it's a, a man has been uh, sleeping with in a relationship with his mother-in-law. Um, and it's one, a relationship that everybody's okay with. And the second one we come to today is fellow believers are um, taking each other to small claims court, like they're going Judge Judy on each other, okay? And these are things that we're, we're all very familiar with. We struggle with these things all the time, right? No, we don't. <laughs> we, we don't. We don't need any illumination on these subjects at all. To us, these things are very apparent in a certain sense, right? Right? And, and, and that's okay. Uh, that's okay. And um, these are just the particulars of their struggles that they, that they stem from this larger malfunction that, that Christians fall short of um, all the time. And, and thankfully, in passages like these, Paul's actually, uh, he, he does this when he deals with, with the particular struggles that he sees. He always abstracts up. He always abstracts up and he points to the greater truths and greater concepts um, of what is true for Christians across all times and all cultures. He, he reaches into something else that, to abstract up because he wants to correct their malfunction, not just their behavior. So he's saying there's an abstract thing that you have off here. If you get that right, then all this other stuff will work itself out. And so because he does that, um, we actually have the ability to take that and, and we don't need to work it down into Judge Judy stuff necessarily, but we can work it into our own life in different ways. And so that's what we've been doing these past couple of weeks. Um, and this work of, of consideration is so important to, to do, to like lead, let Paul set the abstract concepts for us and truths that are true for all Christians across all times, across all cultures. Because uh, there's a, a reality of the Christian faith that goes like this. Over the course of our lives, there will be several different points where we will feel like it's not going that well. Like we're not actually finding the fulfillment that we feel like Christ promised us, right? Like, like that's not available to me at this point in my life. Everybody will, will feel that at several points in their life. 
Um, and in Seattle, let's just admit it, we're a sad and despairing city, are we not? We're a sad and despairing city. And so we're, we're, we're probably more prone to experience this than most. And if we're not currently experiencing it, we're without a doubt probably helping others, like leading others and discipling other people that are experiencing this or are right around the corner from it themselves. And, and, and when we experience it, we really have three options. And you see these options throughout all of culture. Uh, the first uh, is this. Uh, we can blame Jesus and give up. Like Jesus, you said this was going to go great. It's not going great. I'm not finding life. I'm done. The second thing we can do is we can resign ourselves to Christian misery. Can we not? We can just say, you know, this is just how it is. This is how it is. There's no changing it. This is how it is. That's painfully common. Painfully common. And then third, we can roll up our sleeves and consider why we're not experiencing what Jesus promised, his joy, his love, his peace. He called it life abundant. He came that we, his people might have life abundant. Why aren't we experiencing these things? And, and so what we get to do on Sunday mornings is Paul's always helping people do number three. He's saying, let's not give up. Let's not resign to the status quo. And let's not, you let, he's not going to let you go through life just experiencing Christian misery. Instead, let's roll up our sleeves and try to do the work of consideration, of trying to figure out what might be off and, and how we might be able to get on the right track. So that's what we're doing this morning. That's what we do most mornings here. Um, so, so the circumstance that Paul's writing to here, okay, so apparently they're taking each other to small claims court. Um, now, I wouldn't say this never happens nowadays, right? They're, like in a country where I was just looking at the, the statistics this week again of just the updated stuff from 2020 of how many people would say I'm part of this Christian tradition. And you have about 58% of, of the United States would say I'm part of this Christian tradition with another like 23% who would say you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm not going to stake a claim anywhere. And then you have your various uh, different other faiths that people are in 1% here, 1% there. Um, so 58% means that Christians probably are taking Christians to court fairly often in a country that has a large legal system and, court, and cases happen. Um, but at the same time, a lot of those judges might be Christians themselves, and these cases might be happening in front of Christians, and so it's a little bit difficult, you're going to see in a minute here, to draw a one-for-one line between, like, what Paul's talking about there and how our justice system works nowadays, and so we're, we're, we're not actually going to dive into that directly this morning, um, but uh, I want to read this passage together so we can start to get a flavor of what's going on here. Um, with regards to this uh, lawsuits among believers. So if you have your Bible, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, we're going to read the first eight verses together. Paul says, If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? And I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and all that before unbelievers. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. And you do this to brothers and sisters. 
Paul's really upset here. He's really upset. You, you can feel his frustration, can't you? Um, that phrase, how dare you, actually in the Greek, comes at the, very, at the very beginning of verse 1. They have to translate it and put it in the middle there to kind of make it all make sense. Paul thought very complicated. Um, but he's very upset, he thought and wrote very complicated. But he's very, very upset. And, and what I want to do this morning is really just distill this down to, to two, like often when people are, are malfunctioning, when Paul sees people malfunctioning, he'll point them to, to the things they need to understand in order to, to fix it, those concept principles that we talked about. And, and in this case, he's pointing these Christians in Corinth to two of them that are so helpful for us. He, he's encouraging them to lean on these two things so that they might move and step with the gospel as a community again. All right, and, and so um, they go like this. It's, and you heard them in there. Don't you know that God calls you, calls Christians to judge? And don't you know that God calls Christians to love? Two topics that are typically uh, held in tension, right? That those are, 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 you feel the tension that way. He's telling them they're called to judge and they're called to love. Like, how, how is this both true? How can both of these be true at the same time? And so we're just going to unpack each one of these, and we're going to start with the judging one, well, because that's where Paul starts, and it's the one that can really, it really kind of stirs up some stuff within our own hearts. You probably feel it stirring up things in your own soul, right? Judging. This is a most unattractive quality, is it not? <laughs> is it not? The possibility that, that Christianity might make someone make judgments about somebody else's life is the primary reason why many people are leaving the Christian faith. It's the primary reason why many people will not touch the Christian faith with a 10-foot pole, is it not? Judging. But Paul says, don't you know that you, God's people, will judge the world? And for those of us who who are Christians and have stuck around through passages like this, uh, we we, we kind of think, hold up, didn't Jesus tell us not to judge? Like, like I've read my Bible and Jesus says, do not judge, so you do, do not be judged. What's going on here? Why is Paul telling us this. What is he talking about? Is he teaching a different teaching than Jesus Christ himself? That's probably racing through a lot of our minds. It raced through my mind this week. Like, well, hold on. What's going on here? And then he adds to it. He said, that's not enough. Like, you guys are going to judge angels. That's what Paul says. Christians are going to judge angels. It's not like you're just going to judge immortal, or you're going to judge mortal beings, humans, but, but kind of the, the immortal, spiritual beings of angels. What is Paul talking about here? What? We don't typically think of ourselves in these terms, in these roles, do we? I guarantee not. At least I don't. Maybe you do. Maybe you're, you're, you're gung-ho on this, and that's great. I should have called you this week. That would, have been, that would have saved me a lot of time, you know? Um, but it seems so apparent to Paul, doesn't it? It seems so apparent. He's so confident. It's so apparent to him. And, and, and we're left scratching our, our heads and asking, like, where is he coming up with this stuff? And that's fair. That's fair. And to begin to consider this, we have to acknowledge that Paul, he's leaning on a deep and a robust understanding of, of God and how he works in the world as, as the scriptures kind of uh, tell us and show us that this is how God acts in the world. And it goes like this. God works through humans. God works through humans. Um, after creating the earth, packing it with potential, after creating humans, packing them with potential. 
God puts them on earth as his image bearers. This is all Genesis 1 and 2. To harvest that potential, to tend the earth, to keep the earth, to be, fu- to, to be fruitful, to multiply. God has creation and, and sets up the created order, packs it full of stuff, puts humans on it and says, all right, guys, we're going to be, through relationship with me, you're going to harvest that potential. You're going to harvest that potential. That's what God is up to here in the created order. And as you harvest the potential of the created order and bless it, it in turn is going to turn and bless you, and you guys are going to bless each other, and it's going to be this incredible, uh, just all these relationships defined by, by blessing and joy and satisfaction and unity. The Jews called it shalom, all parts of the, the created order working together in beautiful ways. I'm going to indirectly bless all of you through one another. Through a relationship with me, you can't do it apart from relationship with me, but I'm, that's what God's up to here in the world. Humans want to do it without God. It all gets out of whack then, and, and even though it gets out of order, what becomes clear is that even though God wants to put it back in order, the strategy is still the same. I want to do it through humans. Genesis 12, he shows up to Abraham and he says, I will bless you, Abraham, and you will be a blessing. And through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. See, there's this notion of of, of God, the central thrust of God working through Abraham, sending his blessing to Abraham, and through Abraham, the rest of the world is going to experience that blessing. This is how God has always worked in the world. He hopes to get things done through human beings. God isn't up here preaching a sermon right now. I am. And, and, and we pray and we ask him that he might work through me, that he might inspire me to, do, to say and, and, and point to his word what he wants to say and, and highlight his word to you in the ways that he might want to do it, but he's not going to get up here and preach a sermon to you. He uses his people to do it. This is, how, this is God's strategy on earth. And the only problem is, is that humans fall short of actualizing it. Even the best examples, King David falls so far, so far short. He, he's the, the pinnacle of example of humans letting God work through them to bless the world, to get done his will here on earth. And when Jesus showed up on the scene, so we need someone to fix this, and so Jesus shows up on the scene. And when he shows up on the scene, he announced God's coming kingdom in the world to fix it. He says, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom's at hand. And, and we understand this a little bit worse than they did in the first century. We don't have a great notion of how kingdoms exactly work, uh, the notion of a king. We have, you know, a little bit different political structure nowadays. Um, but the first century people understood that a coming kingdom implied that justice had to be administered. Justice had to be administered. Um, justice is just that which implements the desires of a king. And, and wherever that justice is done, a kingdom exists of that king. Without administering justice, there's actually no kingdom. Someone else is administering justice, and their desires and will are getting done there. Um, you could think about it like this. Most weeks, um, I wake up on Monday morning. It's my day off. After a weekend full of, of work or uh, work and like having a bunch of like play dates happen at my house, going and doing other things, uh, preparing meals. Uh, and so like I wake up Monday morning, I'll even like typically try to do a house project over the course of the weekend, and those don't really ever get done, right? Um, I wake up Monday morning, and my house is a disaster. It's in just like complete chaos. There's toys everywhere. The sink is full of dishes, 
and the dishwasher's full of clean dishes, so it's like it's just piles of laundry that need to get done, all my tools are out still, you know, like, like it's a mess. And what has to happen is I need to spend an hour or two, and I need to judge my house. <laughs> I need to say, this is good, and this is not good, and I need to administer justice, and, and until I do that for like an hour or two, I can't actually rest in that place. It's not a place of flourishing for me. My will is not getting done. And so I wake up, and I'm, I make my will get done in my house, so that the rest of the day, I might rest and I might flourish. So I can go into the week full and, and prepared. Okay, so th- that's really how we can think about admit. I mean, you guys do that. Everybody has a little kingdom that they judge. That they judge. And, and it's similar with God's kingdom coming to earth, but there's one big difference. God wants to do it still in relationship with his people. He, he works through humans to accomplish what he wants to get done here on earth. That's not to say there aren't exceptions. We see God showing up in, in miraculous ways throughout the scriptures. But what Paul's telling us is this isn't necessarily one of them. Even the Messiah, Jesus Christ, shows up through who? Mary. God works through humans to get done on earth what he wants to get done. He even wants to administer justice through his people. Now, now how can we be certain of this? Well, Jesus actually said this as well. Jesus said this. In in Luke 22, he's having a conversation with his disciples, and, and he said this in Luke 22. Then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. But he, that's Jesus, said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. It is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who stood by me in my trials. I bestow, upon, bestow on you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There it is. Jesus wants, hold on, Jesus. We're gonna judge the earth? Isn't that like the king's job? If you're the Messiah, shouldn't you be the one that judges it? You wanna judge it through us? It's very strange. Now, God has pushed pause on us on that for the time being. So that's what's very clear here in 1 Corinthians is Paul says, don't you know you will judge? Like you're not doing, Christians aren't to do that now. That's something we should be very, very clear on, that we're not invited to this judging nature of the world now. God's not calling Christians nowadays to administer justice in the world in that way. But we say, well, surely Jesus doesn't have every Christian in mind. Those are just the, the, the super Christians, these, the, the apostles. Surely Jesus doesn't have every person in, in mind. And, and it's very true, like perhaps they do have a special increased role in administering justice in the future. Um, but it seems that Christians in all, like all Christians in some way, will take part. And, and that, to, to that we look in the book of Revelation, uh, which actually talks about the final judgment. But before we get there, there's this church 
uh, called Thyatira, who Jesus uh, gives a message to an angel to give to that church. And I want to read this message to this church in Thyatira because it really illustrates how Jesus envisions all Christians at least taking part in this. What that looks like is still incredibly unclear, and we will never know until it actually happens. But it goes like this. It's in Revelation chapter 2. This is uh, Jesus speaking. So in your Bible, if you have the red letters, this is the uh, red letter part. Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira, Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery fiery flame and whose feet are fine like bronze. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed with those who commit adultery with her into great affliction unless they repent of their works. I will strike her, her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts and I will give to each of you according to your works. This is kind of an intense imagery. We're not exactly sure exactly what these circumstances were about. A lot of these letters to churches in, in the beginning of the book of Revelation, these are real churches that were struggling with real things that, that Jesus is speaking to through John, Okay. Um, But he says this, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who haven't known the the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I'm not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he will rule them as with an iron scepter. This is talking about Jesus. He will shatter them like pottery. Just as, I, just as I received this from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I think we lost a piece there. Sorry, guys. I'm going to flip over here to Revelation chapter 2. We lost a piece there. Very important piece. The most important piece. Figures. Um, 2.19. It's in verse 26. Um, It says, I'm not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. So it's not talking about Jesus. To the one who overcomes. And he will shatter them like pottery, just as I received this from my father. I will also give him the morning star. And so Jesus says here, there's this element that I am giving this judgment of the nations over to the one who who believes in my name, who overcomes. And then in Revelation chapter 20, in John's vision of the final judgment, God raises Christians. We see it happen. God raises Christians back to life, and we see them judge the world in a certain sense. It's all very unclear what this actually looks like, but, but it happens. So even when it comes to the administration of that final justice in the world, God wants to work through his people. It's like a parent cleaning their house through their kids. Like, I long for the day when my kids can clean my house, push a vacuum, be tall enough to do the dishes, you know, without breaking them. You know, like, like I long for that day. That's the picture of how God hopes to one day in the far future when we've all grown up into full maturation and maturity in Christ, when we become full children, full adopted heirs before God. That'll be our job. This is how God has always related to his creation. 
Jesus reiterated it, and Paul is picking up on that here in 1 Corinthians 6. But, but he's using this conclusion about how Christians will one day judge the world to make a, to make a point about how they should conduct themselves now, though, right? Like, that, that's what he's up to. He has a current situation and saying, stop doing that because there's this future reality, right? He said, you've forgotten that you can indeed occupy this role now in a certain sense. Now, how can this be? Because God's kingdom, this heaven coming to earth, has a present dimension to it, his church, his church. God is administering his heavenly justice on earth through his church people in his church. And and, and hear me very clearly again, in his church only. Only for his church people. The future judgment of non-believers is completely held back till that future, future date in the, in the far, well, whenever Jesus comes back. That's called grace and God's patience and his long-suffering with humanity so that as many as possible might be on the right side of it. But, but this is why Christians might help each other see their sin, to, to judge in a sense. And Jesus said, hold up, if you are going to help your Christian brother or sister see their sin, you better have that figured out yourself. Don't remove the speck in your brother or sister's eye without getting the plank out of yours. There should be no hypocrisy in this. So take that really, really seriously. Um, But that's not the component of judging that Paul's talking about here. Um, Paul is saying that when disputes arise, someone within the church should be able to arbitrate and administer justice here. It's a long-winded way. I'm trying to just make clear the scriptures for you. Someone within you can surely, there's surely a wise person among you that can administer justice here is what Paul's saying. This is what Paul's not saying. You guys have some small disputes among you? Ah, forget about it. You've been forgiven. Shouldn't you forgiven much? Just cover over and forgive the debt, forget about it, and move on. Well, that's fascinating, right? That's, that's almost what we feel like should, he should say at this point, right? Like, you guys should forget about this. No, instead he's saying, isn't there someone among you that can help you figure this out? Isn't there someone here? God has empowered Christians as judges, not the non-believing world. Why are you running to the non-believing world for, for, for justice? It's, it's so backwards in his mind. And he's really rightfully perplexed. He says, why are you going before unrighteous, or the Greek word is before unjust people? They have a worldly wisdom. The Greco-Roman courts were notoriously corrupt, full of bribes. They have worldly wisdom. They've created a worldly system that can be swayed, that can't actually administer full justice in a great way at all. And people, they leave their separate ways, the losing party feeling cheated. Anybody seen an exit interview on Judge Judy? They are hot. They do not feel like they got any sort of fair shake in the trial. Paul says, why would you engage that system looking for justice? It can't give you great justice. Instead, go to God's people, who he uses to administer justice, who have a peculiar wisdom coming from the mind of Christ, which leads to a truthful and a sincere system, it should, the church, which will administer, not perfect, but the best justice it can. That's the best justice available to us. It is a church system that is submitting to the authority of God and his scriptures. That's your best chance at justice, Paul says. Why wouldn't you go there? Why wouldn't you go there? Can you see how it provides the best chance? Um, 
So, so what areas do we need to ask for wise people to administer justice? Like, like when is this actually applicable to our lives, right? Like, how is this? Um, because, let's be clear, d- disputes happen. They do. If you're newer to Christianity and you're living with the, the rose-colored glasses still, that, that Christians just get along and forgive and it all goes great, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ruin it for you a little bit because that's just not true. <laughs> I remember uh, when Dave and I were leading a, a, a cohort just years and years ago, um, there's a... a a guy who is just, who's an older gentleman who is investigating the faith. And just after a couple cohort sessions, he said, hold up, you guys aren't perfect. <laughs> he had his rose color glasses completely removed. You know, he's such a kind guy. Gordon, he became a Christian and oh, he's a great guy. We love him. But that's not true. We, we sin, we fall short, we hurt one another. We need help in solving disputes among the body of God. And this is what this passage is saying you should not do when that happens. Engage a non-believer as your judge. Um, and that, you might do that without the other party being present. And it looks like this. Um, if I have a dispute with Dave, for example, or anybody here, I could go to my friend Mike. Mike is my good, good friend. Um, he's a great guy, not a believer. Um, our families, they hang out all the time. We, we, me and Mike go to sporting events together. We're going to the soccer game this week, big game this week together on Wednesday night. Um, we've had a few conversations about God, but, but he's, he's not there yet. But this is what I could do with that dispute that I've had. I could go to Mike, and I could tell him about the dispute, and I could explain my reasoning, and do you know what Mike would say to me? He'd be like, yeah, screw that guy. That's what Mike would say to me, because he's my friend. And he's only here in one half of the story. That's what he would say to me. And I'd be like, yeah, thanks, Mike. And I'd feel justified in that moment, wouldn't I? I'd be using Mike as my judge. And I'd probably be doing it because I'd be trying to, to stuff down the parts in my flesh that I really wanted to, to, to that, that I, I shouldn't have to stuff down. I, I, there's part of that argument that is present within all of us. And when we have a dispute, there's part of our flesh that just wants to win that argument. There's part about that dispute that we want, we want to just serve ourselves in that. And I know Mike's not going to call me out for that at all. That's why I went to him. That's why I made him my judge in a sense. And he'd be on my side 100% of the time. But if you have a dispute with someone else or the Lord forbid, a a group in the church that's going unresolved, or if you feel like you've been cheated in some way, some shape, some form, what you must do if you can't come to a settlement or an agreement of, of some kind is you must engage the elders and the deacons at the church, or, or just a, a wise person, you can try engaging cohort leaders first, and if you feel like it's still not going well, engaging deacons and elders on this, especially the deacons. It, it's their job in the church, for, and those of you who know this who've been through our family membership class, it's their job to ensure that justice is administered here in our body, that they aren't just people who just serve a little bit more than the rest of us. They are people who it's their job to make sure that everybody in the church is being thought of, being cared for, and no one's being treated unjustly. This is why deacons were created in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, what we have is a scenario where the Greek widows are being overlooked in the distribution of food to widows from the church. Only the Jewish widows are getting it. They didn't need more people to serve to fix that solution. They needed more people to, be, to roll up their sleeves and administer justice. That's what deacons are for. And we're so grateful to God for giving Sedaris deacons, for, for calling them to serve his church and empowering them with a peculiar wisdom to, to solve and settle disputes that are going on in the church. Now, now, that's to say, I'll say it again, 
They're not going to get it right 100% of the time. And, 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 and to be sure, like all of us operate kind of in, in a more fuller council at this point in, in a church where elders and deacons try to figure this stuff out together. It, but it's the best chance, the best shot you have at getting justice while having an obsessive focus on church unity. An obsessive cho- focus on church unity. That's the point. So, so that's all to say. Lean into wise people in the church to settle your disputes. Don't, don't, don't bury them. Don't go to the mic. Mike will always corroborate your story. So that's the first. Paul's reminding us that we have a calling of judges, which is strange and pushed on pause in a lot of ways and really just present for our community here through wise people. Um, that's the first way. The second way goes like this. That the second calling that Paul's calling them to Christians are called to love, to love, to love. Um, you've probably heard this a lot, right? This is one that doesn't kind of grind us the wrong way. This, this is one that we're like, oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, how, how do we know? I want to flesh this out for you to give the full vision of this for Paul because um, there's an incredibly beautiful thing he's saying here with regards to just courts generally, which is really cool. Um, but the first is, how do we know he actually has also this loving component in mind? He doesn't use the word love at all. And, and that's because um, in the, uh, when he first talks about judging, he's really upset that, that they're bringing cases before the unrighteous, before unrighteous, before the unjust. He kind of has this notion of, of the non-believer that their judging um, component is being engaged. You're engaging their judging component to help you, okay? But then later, if you, if you skip down here, he changes it a little bit. What he says is brother, he says instead brother goes to court against brother, and that before, same preposition, that before, non-believers. Different Greek word. Literally, just the ones that don't believe. Just the ones that don't believe. Like with no reference to any aspect of them issuing a judgment or any quality of, 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 of them at all. Just before those who don't believe. So, so first he's, going, he's upset because they're going before unrighteous judges, seeking coming under their verdicts. And now um, he's upset that they are publicly displaying their disputes. Like, why are you making this public before the non-believers in your city? Before them, in front of them. And he says this in, in 7, verse 7, as it is to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat and you do this to brothers and sisters. Uh, my translation has exclamation points. Uh, he's outraged. And this is going to launch him into a rant in the following verses that's fairly intense that we decided, hey, let's give this its own week to breathe in here so we can provide some, some context here. But we might say to Paul, why are you so upset about Christians living authentic, honest lives in front of the world? Like, why are you so upset about that? Like, you're asking us to hide our junk from the world? That doesn't feel authentic or right or or fair or like we're even giving them an accurate description of what it means to be a Christian. Like, if Paul were alive today, would would he give the Catholic Church a pat on the back for for just uh, burying all of those sexual abuse cases for decades and decades and decades? Surely not. Surely not. He would not do that. And and here's what's going on. Uh, like, Like our first point, Paul grounded all of his instruction, all of his discipleship uh, for, for people in the person 
of Jesus. Okay, don't let other, anybody tell you otherwise. And, and one of the most significant teachings of Jesus, preserved for us in the New Testament, is in the Gospel of John at the Last Supper. And it's four chapters, four chapters long. John's only like 20, 21 chapters long. So, so 20% of John's Gospel that he is recounting the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, he takes 20% of that to focus on one conversation. It's a big deal. It's a really big conversation. It's a really important conversation. It's like one of the, like the two big Jesus conversations in the New Testament, probably like Sermon on the Mount and the Last Supper discourse that John goes through. Like those are two big ones. Like if you want to grow as a Christian, just spend a lot of time in those conversations because there's so much in there. They're so deep. They're profound. It's a really, really big conversation. Um, and, and at this, the Last Supper, uh, and John kind of goes through this because he was kind of reclining right there, putting his head on Jesus' shoulder, we find out. You know, Jesus kind of at one point says, alas, one of you, you're going to betray me. The disciples are confused and, and riddled by this. Is it me, Lord? Is it me, Lord? Is it me, Lord? And then Peter kind of motions over to John. He says, hey, ask him which one of us it is. You know, like, he's obviously not going to tell all of us, but maybe you can. And so John kind of leans over and he asks Jesus, you know, he's sitting right next to him. And Jesus says uh, to him kind of privately, it's the one who I give this piece of bread after I dip it in the dip. I'm not sure what kind of dip it is. I'm not an expert in the Passover meal, but I think like people know, oh, this is what Jesus would have dipped himself in. It might have been the bitter herbs, for example. Um, but uh, so he dips it in the bowl and then he gives it to Judas and he says to Judas, uh, what you're about to do, do it quickly. The rest of the, t- the disciples are like, why are they making Jesus or Judas go buy something right now? Like, they don't understand what's going on. And then Jesus goes out into the night, and he goes to the Jewish uh, council, uh, the, the Jewish court, to, to, to tell them, I'll, I'll betray Jesus, which means I'll help you find this guy and identify this guy so that you know who to convict who's as, as the Messiah, okay? Um, and once he leaves, once Judas is out of there, Jesus enters this time of teaching, okay? That, that'll span the next few chapters and it'll conclude with this prayer. Um, and he tells the disciples that he's leaving them and then he begins to teach them what they need to know in order to keep on going as he's gone. And he starts it off like this. He starts off like this. And it's so important. I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. But you are also to love, uh, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, if you've read the Bible, you might be a little bit curious here. Why does Jesus call this new? Like, why is this a new command? Jesus, like, if we go through these scriptures, there's countless times of God calling his people to love one another. Like, why does Jesus call this a new command? How, How can he call it new? Well, it's because of that phrase in the second sentence there that he starts just as, just as. It's the specificity he brings to it. Love one another is not a new command, but love one another just as I have loved you. That's a new command. That's a new command. And and John could have used a a handful of other Greek words to communicate what the thrust of Jesus' message was right here. He could have used just like or as, but there's a specific Greek word that means just as, which carries more of the notion of identical to, identical to. This is a new command. He had just washed their feet. Over the course of the next several hours, he would be taken to a public court and not even respond. He would be convicted and and take beatings. 
Why? For the sin of the world, for his followers. He would take thorns introduced by the fall of Genesis 3 that are our fault. He would take those thorns pressed into his brow. He would take a, a brutal flogging. He would take a public, naked, embarrassing humiliation as they drove nails into his hands and feet to hang him on the cross. And guess what? He was innocent. Paul says, shouldn't you rather be wronged? Shouldn't you rather be cheated? Jesus' new commandment is that you love one another just as he loved you, like Christ. And then for more emphasis, he followed up with love, I say, love one another, to sacrifice for one another, even if you are in the right. And Jesus even gave him the why behind it all. Why? By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Everyone will know you are my disciple as you love one another just as I have loved you. It'll have only one single explanation. Oh yeah, those are Jesus' people. That's just what they do. That's what they do. How can this be? Because it's not of this world. It demands a heavenly explanation when it's truly being done. God's kingdom coming to earth. It's it's the state of affairs in God's kingdom after justice has been administered. Perfect, beautiful, self-giving, self-sacrificial love. And the Corinthians are engaged in the opposite of one another, in the opposite towards one another, which is exactly why in the coming verses, Paul is going to ask them to consider very seriously whether they will actually partake in the future kingdom of God or not. Because as he looks at them, he says, you guys are acting the opposite of what the kingdom of God acts like. In fact, you guys are acting in such a way that the kingdom of God, when it shows up, it actually eliminates that. He's going to invite them to consider that very, very seriously. Oh yeah, those are Jesus' people, is what they said in the first century. Those are Christians. Those are little Christs first used to ridicule the followers of Jesus, then embraced as a confirmation, hey, we're doing it right. We're doing it right. He said, new command, love one another just as I have loved you. We're doing it right. We're Christians. And the question we should be asking ourselves is, are we worthy of that title? Are we? Little Christ. Christians. It's just thrown around today as commonplace, but are you worthy of it? Are you striving to fulfill this new command? Am I striving to fill this new command? And in another sense, are you comfortable with the love that you have for your brothers and sisters being expressed in such a public way that it outs you as a little Christ? It's another question that we should ask in a city like Seattle, where Christianity is the problem with the world, right? We're called to love, and to act contrary is to lose our witness in the world of who Jesus Christ is. That's what Paul's saying. That's what Paul's saying. He he says, to act contrary is indicative of what? Your defeat, he says. That the mission that God has tasked you guys with, that God has tasked us with, isn't coming to fruition at all. 
It's not successful at all. How can a non-believer even get a glimpse of the Jesus way? And here's what's crazy. The Corinthian church is probably preaching the Bible, like preaching the scriptures. They're probably talking about Jesus quite a lot, but they weren't Jesus living. They weren't living Jesus's ways. That's why the 14 principles class is just as important as the gospel class here at Sedaris. The 14 principles is is living Jesus's ways. The gospel is what is Jesus's message? They're both so important, so crucial, and they're a huge deal. Huge deal. So so Jesus gave his his disciples a new commandment at the beginning of his teaching, and then we have several chapters of some of the most magnificent, applicable, beautiful, theologically rich teaching in the whole New Testament over the course of these three chapters. Jesus is telling us to remain in him. He's telling us that he's going to send us the Holy Spirit and everything the Holy Spirit's going to do in our lives. He's going to tell us exactly uh, how the world's going to, going to respond to us and how we, in turn, can, can glorify God in the midst of all of that. It's, some, it's the most beautiful three chapters in the New Testament. It's like top five. And, and what Jesus is going to do as he closes it and goes out into the night to go to the cross is he closes it with a prayer. And we're going to close the sermon today with the same prayer. And so if you'll just bow your head with me. Uh, this comes from John chapter 17. I'm not going to read the whole prayer. It's really long. I'm going to pick it up in verse 9. If you'd like to go back to it later, you can write, write that down. This is Jesus praying for, all, for um, his disciples. For his, his uh, disciples. He says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they are yours. Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine. He's talking to his Father God. And I'm glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That's us. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you love me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known, so that the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. Amen.